welcome to All Things Erie from Erie PA. This is Kathy, your host, and today I am recording from my bedroom because my partner is still home working and I don't want to disturb him in his, well, our office slash craft room. And I am going to do my best to try and keep the sound down from sounding like it's echoing. Um, We uh, moved in last September and the only thing we have up on the wall is a TV. So, and this mic picks up a lot. So if you hear something that sounds like a 747, it's the heater on our pool. So I apologize up front. But this week we are talking about and I say we in a royal sense I don't know why I know my daughter hasn't been here and it's been you know months but I'm going to talk about the torso murders the Kingsbury run murders in Cleveland we're going to go back in history to the Chicago area for this one this is episode 33 and I have to admit, I've heard about these before. I've seen these on Haunted History on the History Channel during Halloween. And these ones here, they actually scare the crap out of me every time. Um, But that's what Halloween's for. So let's dig into these. In October of 1929, that was the last time or I should say, the first time Wall Street went into a deep depression and had wiped out millions of investors in the stock market. And over the next several years, with little to no money because people were out of jobs, the economy took a steep nosedive. No, it's, you know, it's not a history lesson, but just hang in with me. The depression started to be to come to an end in 1939, but that was also the beginning of World War II. Those that lost their jobs would move to areas that had jobs, which is the norm, and there were areas that popped up that were called tent cities for those that lost their homes. And in Kingsbury Run in Cleveland, Ohio, it was no different. Kingsbury Run was originally where the industrial part of Cleveland was centered, where you could find oil refineries and trains that came in and out of the city that was considered the sixth largest at the time. And And it's called the Flats now. It's actually super cool. I've been there. And now it's shopping and going for walks. You can actually take a, um, a boat out and do a day trip. It's, it's just really nice. This is where shanty towns would pop up and people would crisscross the country with their families. Mothers and fathers were willing to work any kind of job and they were willing to learn a new trade if needed. The inevitable happened with, as with all tent cities, those that had their money lost what little they had quickly to gambling and going to local brothels. Just east to Kingsbury was called the Roaring Third, which was where it all happened. 
which was the recipe needed for a serial killer lurking that lurking among those that lived in Tent City. Now, Kingsbury Run itself, just to give you an idea of size, and if you know anything about Cleveland, it ran about where the flats are today to about East 90th, and it was bordered on the north by Woodland Avenue and on the south by Broad- by Broadway Avenue. So it was it was pretty big. In September 1934, a young man was found, the torso that washed up on the shores of Lake Erie. And upon examination by Cuyahoga coroner A.J. Pierce, he had noted that the female whose thighs were still attached had been amputated at the knees. Also, there was some sort of chemical preservation on the skin which had turned it red and leathery. Authorities didn't did another search for more body parts but found few others. They they know that the woman was in her mid-30s when she died, but they were never able to find her head for identification. She was then known as the Lady of the Lake. It was two years later when authorities found that she had been part of a total number of killings and then became known as victim zero. And it would take another full year for an official case to begin, and that would be in another part of the city itself. This would begin in September of 1935. So, like I said, a full year later, what happened was two teenage boys, they were at the bottom jackass hill gotta love the names, they had discovered a decapitated and emasculated corpse of a white male. The body of the deceased was naked except for a pair of socks, was cleaned and had been drained of blood, which is completely different from the first victim. The wrist had rope burns on them, and the coroners had said that the cause of death had been the decapitation itself. Fingerprints were taken from the man, and they came back to Edward Andresy. And remember, there was no CODIS or anything like that. You had to take the fingerprints, and you had to go through each fingerprint at a time and match them up. This guy was 28 years old, and he was a, an orderly at a local hospital. So this guy was working, and he was living in a tent city. He was he had a criminal record and his record was that he was charged with a concealed weapon. He, it was also rumored that he was gay and he would go to the Roaring Third, the brothel. The police also discovered a second body nearby which had been decapitated and emasculated and had also discovered in the same chemical preservation as the Lady of the Lake. However, this body had been dead for a couple of weeks, and when examined, it was determined to be a 40-year-old man who had never been identified. Now, being charged with a concealed weapon would seem like second nature in this particular area at the time. After all, a lot of the folks that had lived there, for most part, were just trying to make a living and get by. These were not bad people. I mean, these were people who were just down on their luck who had lost everything due to the stock market crash. 
they were no different than you or I. They Prior to that, they were living paycheck to paycheck. It would only had taken one paycheck, maybe two, before they lost everything. And there was no system to back it up. Then in January of 1936, a, the body of a half-naked woman is discovered neatly wrapped in newspaper and packed in two half-bushel baskets. The baskets were then left alongside the Hart Manufacturing Building on Central Avenue near East 20th Street. All of her remains, but her head, were covered were recovered in a vacant lot nearby Orange Avenue. And just like the case of Edward Andresy, the cause of death was the was decapitation. For whatever reason, the killer waited for rigor mortis to set in and then cut the body into pieces. Fingerprints would ID this victim as Florence Polio, who had been a waitress, barmaid, and prostitute. When Florence died, she was living at East 32nd Street and Carnegie, right on the edge of the Royan Third. And it sounded like this lady was just trying to make make a living. And I would like to think that at the time they did their best to still find her killer, even though she was making her way as a prostitute to earn extra money. And throwing in that she was a prostitute, to me, in today's day and age, it makes no difference. But back then, it made a huge difference. Then in June of that same year, two boys who were playing near East 55th Street Bridge found a pair of trousers that had contained the head of a white male. Police started their search and found the body of a man in his 20s the next day in front of the Nickel Plate Railroad Police Building. Talk about ballsy. The killer dropped the body in front of a police station. This body also had been cleaned and drained of blood and was intact except for the head. Dr. Pierce determined once again that this death too had been caused by decapitation. And even with fresh fingerprints and the fact that the victim had six distinctive tattoos on his body, the police were never able to ID him. What they did do was make a plaster mask of the man's head along with a diagram of the kind of kind and location of his tattoos and made a display at, at the Great Lakes Exposition of 1936. Now, at that time, it was estimated that over 100,000 people saw this death mask and tattoo chart. Even with that much exposure, he was never ID'd. The original death mask at this point, along with three other death masks, are still on display at the Cleveland Police Museum. In July of 1936, the remains of a 40-year-old white male were found by a teenage girl while she was walking through the woods near Clinton Road and Big Creek on the, on the near west side. This decapitated victim had been dead for about two months. His head and his clothing were found nearby. This time it looks as though the victim was killed where he was found due to the large amounts of blood that had seeped into the ground because they're saying that the, the death was decapitation itself. My question is, could the killer have been spooked or was this his killing area and he was just waiting to come back to, to move the body because some of the 
bodies had been dead for weeks, some of them were fresh. Then in September of 1936, a man trying to hop a train at East 37th Street tripped and fell over the upper half of a man's torso in Kingsbury Run. Now, I have to stop and and explain for those that are not familiar with this particular case. If you've ever seen pictures of this particular area, because you're like, how can you miss seeing a torso or seen any body parts i will upload pictures from this particular time period this place was just heaps of trash that's all it was it was like living in a trash dump it was absolutely disgusting and it makes you wonder how people were living like this but that's what they were doing it it was it just makes you think holy crap I have it good. Even if I lost my job, I'm not living like that. These kids were literally playing in trash dumps. They were literally playing in cesspools. What was considered a, a, a river or water to them was a cesspool. I am not joking. That's what they were doing. And this was where they were living at the time. While searching what at the time, like I said, what was considered a pool, but was really an open sewer. The police found the lower half of the torso and parts of both legs. Divers were sent in to make the recovery of these body parts. As this was going on, onlookers turned out to watch which is nothing new, still goes on today. It was estimated that over 600 people came out to watch what was going on. And we can always wonder if the killer was among the crowd, which it does happen, which is why the police watch the crowds now, because they understand the mind of a killer now. This was considered victim six, and he was in his late 20s and was again decapitated. Dr. Pierce thought he had noticed the lack of hesitation marks where the killer had made his cuts, which indicates that the killer was confident, strong, and familiar with human anatomy. The head of the victim had been cut off with one clean stroke, and the victim had died instantly. This victim had never been ID'd, and there had already been six brutal killings with no clues. The police still had no suspects at this point in time. The local newspapers, which was the Cleveland Press, the Cleveland News, and the Cleveland Plain Dealer, all did daily reporting on these killings and had reported the fact that that there was a lack of a suspect. There's nothing the police can do if they don't have any clues. This guy is smart. He doesn't hesitate. He has already moved on and progressed past his first hesitation. Nobody really knows who his first victim was. Was it victim zero? Was it someone else that they have not found? Mayor Harold Burton, who had recently appointed Elliot Ness, yes, that Elliot Ness, as safety director, the was putting pressure on Ness to get more involved in the case. And what this meant was a meeting with the police 
the coroner and all the other experts to discuss what information they had to profile. Even back then, they were talking about this. Who could be doing these gruesome killings? The detectives that were on this case were Peter Marylowe and Martin Zilowiski. I hope I said those correctly. I apologize if not. These two men would go undercover and go between the police and the places that ran the run and the Roaring Third. These men did a lot of the work on their own time. In the course of the case, they had interviewed more than 1,500 people, just these two. If you go and you add in what the department did, they did 5,000 interviews just for this case alone. And with the years that it spanned, there was elections that went on during all of this. And the people used this to their advantage, which, of course, they did. The mayor was reelected, but the coroner was replaced by, wait for it, you know you've heard this name before, Sam Gerber. Sound familiar? Which it should. We just spoke about him during the Shepherd case. Well, Gerber was just up and coming and had a dedication to medicine and had a law degree. But we'll keep our comments about what happened to him to ourselves. So back to the case. In February 1937, the torso of a woman washes up on the shore of East Bratnall. This torso was found by a man that was just walking along the shore. Three months later, the lower half of the woman's torso washed ashore at 30th Street. What little they could find out about this woman, other than she was decapitated after she died, was she was in her mid-20s she was never identified. Then another body found by a hiker, similar to what could be described as victim zero. She was badly decomposed, but her distinctive teeth led to her being identified as Mrs. Rose Wallace, who had lived in the area at the time. Then in June 1937, the National Guard was called in to maintain order because of labor problems in the flat. By the West 3rd Street Bridge, a young guardsman who had been standing watch saw the first piece of the victim that came in the wake of a tugboat. I'm sure that uh, really made his day there. Over the following days, police recovered the rest of the body except for the head from the Cuyahoga River. With this victim, the abdomen had been gutted and the heart ripped out, which added some added a new twist to this whole mo for what this guy was doing what they were able to find out about this victim was that he was in his mid to late 30s this victim too was never identified then from the rest of july to april of the following year there were no killings then in april of 1938 a young man was on his way to his labor job in the flats as he was walking along the cuyahoga river when what he thought at first was a dead fish turned out to be the lower half of a woman's leg, which was just the first piece of victim number 10. People searched it, searched the area, but after a month, they pulled up two burlap bags out of the river, which contained both parts of the torso and most of the rest of the both legs. This is also the first time that the coroner detected drugs in the victim's system. It is unknown if the drugs were used to immobilize the victim or if she was an addict. Now, in my everything that I read, it never mentioned what type of drugs. 
They thought they might know if they found her arms, but they never did. This particular victim was never ID'd either. Then on August 16, 1938, at a dump site at East 9th and Lakeside, three scrap collectors who were foraging around found the torso of a woman wrapped in a man's double-breasted blue blazer, then wrapped again in an old quilt. The legs and arms were discovered in a makeshift box that had been recently constructed and wrapped in brown butcher paper and then held together with rubber bands. The victim's head was wrapped in a similar way. Dr. Gerber had noted that the body pieces looked as if they had been refrigerated. While the police searched around, they discovered the remains of a second body only a few yards away. Both bodies had been placed in the location that was in plain view from Elliot Ness's office window, and it was as if the killer was taunting them. Both victims were never ID. I'm telling you what, this killer has got some balls on him. He was playing cat and mouse with this with Elliot Ness, and Elliot Ness knew it. Elliot Ness could only go so far with the law, and this killer knew it. August 18th, 1938, Elliot Ness and a group of police officers and detectives conducted a raid on the hobo jungles of the run. At this point, Elliot Ness had had enough. There were 11 squad cars, two police vans, and three fire trucks that descended onto the large cluster of makeshift shacks. And this is where the Cuyahoga River twists behind the public square. They worked their way south through the run and ended up gathering up 63 men. By dawn, the police and fire had, firemen had searched the deserted shanties for whatever clues they could find. Then on the orders of Elliot Ness, the shacks were set on fire and burned to the ground. Like I said, Elliot Ness had had enough and he just went and cleaned house, literally. And I get that he was frustrated, but it wasn't just men that were living in those houses. It was women and children that were living there. There was poverty everywhere. And these people were not just all out of work. These people were working and living there. They lost their homes because of, for whatever reason, nobody agreed with what he did. Personally, I think it was a dick move. I, I just do. Obviously, no one knew who would be next. The press criticized Ness. Like I said, that was a complete dick move and said that the raid would do nothing to solve the murders. But the murders did stop. What we have found through the years, and like I said, I am not a psychologist, never have I claimed to be, I do not have a doctorate in anything, but they do say that whenever you have a serial killer, they do certain things. They either A, get caught, B, leave the area, C, they die, or D, for whatever reason, they will choose to stop, but no one knows what happened and why this person chose to do this. In July of 1939, County Sheriff Martin O'Donnell arrested 52-year-old Bohemian bricklayer Frank Dolzell for the murder of Flo Polio. Frank apparently had lived with Flo and they had further, when they further investigated, 
They found that Frank was also an acquaintance with Frank Andrassy and Rose Wallace, who was one of the victims that was found between 1936 and 1938. Poor Frank is guilty by association. But Frank's confession never really made much sense. It tended to ramble, and it seemed that Frank was coached for his confession. Frank never made it to trial. He was found dead in his cell because Frank hung himself from a hook that was five feet, seven inches off the floor. But Frank was five feet, eight inches. And then when Dr. Gerber did his autopsy, it was revealed that he had six broken ribs, all of which that he had received while in the custody of the sheriff's office. Now, to this day, not many think that Frank was the torso killer, but they do wonder why Sheriff O'Donnell did what he did. There were also too many similarities that had surgical precision, which made the police believe they were dealing with a single person with knowledge of human anatomy. The killer was cold and relentless when he killed, but did not make his victims suffer. They died instantly. This killer was about dismemberment and taunting the police. Elliot Ness definitely had a suspect who he thought was the killer, and the killer continued to taunt Ness for years, even after the killing stopped. As an example, there was a letter that was dated December 21st, 1938, and I'm going to read it as it was written. You can rest easy now, as I have come to sunny California for the winter. I felt bad for operating on those people, but science must advance. I shall astound the medical profession, a man with only a DC. What did their lives mean in comparison to hundreds of sick and diseased twisted bodies? Just laboratory guinea pigs found on any public street. Nobody missed them when I failed. My last case was successful. I now know the feeling of Pasteur, Thoreau and other pioneers. Right now, I have a volunteer who will absolutely prove my theory. They call me mad and a butcher, but the truth will out. I have failed, but once here, the body has not been found and never will be. But the head, minus its features, is buried on Century Boulevard between Western and Crenshaw. I feel it is my duty to dispose of the bodies as I do. It is God's will to not let them suffer. Now, for the most part, it's written well until you get to, they call me mad and a butcher, but the truth will out. That's the only thing that I saw wrong with it. It's also thought that this letter is actually genuine, even though no head was found at the location that was given. And more bodies did pop up afterwards, but they did not bear the resemblance of how the Cleveland Torso murders, murder victims were found. So it makes you wonder if someone tried to be a copy, a copycat back in the day. And more recently, the family of Detective Peter Marylow found lost archive information and his personal memoir, which gave them a firsthand look into the investigation. So with the efforts of Dr. James Badal, author of In the Wake of the Butcher, Cleveland's Torso Murders, though murder has no tongue, lost victim of Cleveland's Mad Butcher, and producer Matt Waldeck, 
they've put together a scripted series and a documentary. And like I said, I will upload the picture that goes along with this piece. What is shown is a medium-sized basket with what only what you can call is meat wrapped inside. The photo is black and white, so making out the details are a bit hard. But then there are what appear to be two other body parts sitting next to each other by the basket. And the man talks about being asked to deliver the basket and what is asked to to describe the person who asked him to deliver the basket. What he remembers is a man in a white coat asking him to deliver the basket. In part of the documentary, there is never before heard audio piece conducted by Detective Marylow of an unknown witness after the third victim has been found. I will put a link on the Facebook page to the to the uh, audio portion. I, I don't want to have any issues with uh, copyrights or anything like that, but I will put a link to uh, doc, uh, to Dr. Badal's uh, website from an article in Cleveland Magazine by Eric Tricky, which was dated uh, June in 2014. James Badal's book that came out in that time, Badal claimed he had solved who the Mad Butcher was. Now, it seemed that in the 18 years that he had taken to research his book, he had included new evidence that connects a Francis Edward Sweeney to this case. Now, you might ask, who is Francis Edward Sweeney? Sweeney, whom Badal proved to be a secret suspect in his book, Wake of the Butcher, was a deranged doctor who at one point had sent postcards to Elliot Ness that were signed F.E. Sweeney, Paranoid Nemesis. In Badal's 2014 book, Butcher, it includes a story of Emile Franck, who at the time was a vagrant who had claimed a Cleveland's doc, a Cleveland doctor tried to drug him in 1934 during the time of the murders. And in the book, Badal believed that he had identified the butcher's laboratory where he discarded the victims. I'm not going to go into it because it kind of spoils the whole thing, but it's very compelling. Badal made a solid claim in his book during his research. The name he came across was known by Ness back in 1938. And when he had continued with his research, he found that another writer had had it confirmed back in 1970s by papers that were given to her by Elliot Ness's daughter-in-law. In this, there was reference during the summer of 1936 that Dr. A.J. Pierce, the original coroner, had invited Lawman to a conference, which we had talked about earlier, and statements that were made about the possibility of a hunter, butcher, or a medical intern. As he got further into his research, there was reference in the news to a doctor that was considered a suspect, one that who was in dispute, in dispute, an alcoholic, a drug addict. At this point, any doctor who had any kind of rumor attached to their name came under suspicion. But there was only one doctor Elliot Ness was looking for and was willing to break rules for. But even Elliot Ness had to be careful how far he could go with Dr. Sweeney because Dr. Sweeney had a relative in a high place. Dr. Sweeney had a relative in a high place, a congressman, Martin L. Sweeney, which meant something back in those days, kind of like an untouchable. But how far would Elliot Ness go? Ness went so far as to pull some strings and have an old friend from his Chicago days, Leonard Keeler. 
the actual inventor, bring a lie detector from Chicago and give one to Sweeney without using Sweeney's name, saying it took almost three days to dry this guy out that he was so drunk. There were almost two weeks total. They were there almost two weeks total. When finished, Keeler supposedly told Ness, that's your man, I might as well throw my machine out the window if I say anything different. And this was a quote from David Cowles, who had been there during the secret interrogation. They had done an interview, and, and he had done an interview with the Cleveland Police Historical Society. Cowles went on to describe the man in full detail, and it left no doubt that it was Sweeney. Sweeney himself had been in and out of the court system. In 1933, it, it started with his wife going to probate court and wanting him to be picked up and be evaluated because of his alcoholism that was becoming more and more of a problem. Sweeney had been neglecting his practice, was being abusive to his family, and would disappear for days at a time. So in and out of the court system, his wife goes to court in 1933, the murder started that they know of in 1935. His alcoholism was out of control, was abusive towards his family, and disappeared for days on end. And that's just a recipe for a serial killer. This doesn't even get us to the Newcastle killings. Even though Sweeney was around in Cleveland for the killings, there was as far as anyone can see, he would not be up for the challenge of quote-unquote riding the rails to Newcastle to go and kill in a new city. But the question is, did he have any connections there? Would he, would he have been able to have his kill laboratory? Sweeney liked his comforts and those would not have been able, those would not have been available to him there. So again, was there a copycat or did Sweeney train someone, an acolyte perhaps? This is something that we will never know. We'll only be able to speculate. But what we do know about those murders are that in an article that I found in Psycho Psychology Today, written by Catherine Ramsland, PhD, in July of 2013. She, too, spoke with James Badal about his theory about the Mad Butcher and Newcastle. Those murders in Newcastle started, actually, in 1925 with the finding of three dismembered men. But the theory with those murders was that it was connected to organized crime and that they were disposing of their victims. An Italian enforcer known as the Black Hand, you gotta love that name, was known to operate in that particular area. The city prosecuted several people from that particular crime organization, which they thought was effective at that time. This organization had also been looked at for the axe murders down in New Orleans. Then the murders in Cleveland began and dismembered bodies start showing up. Once the city thought things were over, more, bar more bodies started to turn up. But this time they were outside of the city. Then in October of 1939, the body of a male turned up in the murder swamp in Newcastle, which was what it was called, the murder swamp. Then three more showed up, but this time they were in boxcars that came out of Youngstown, Ohio. Then there was Pittsburgh which was dealing with their own body that turned up headless, but this one was in the river, and later they found a pair of legs. After time, 
after some time without a head after some time another body without a head with the boxcar that came out of youngstown you have to ask yourself where were the connections prior meaning did those boxcars originally come out of youngstown or did they have a connection out of cleveland and the bodies removed from pittsburgh it didn't mean it didn't mention being drained of blood so like i said before is this a copycat you would need a special place to do that type of work if you would like to see some of these areas detective chuck groves had offered haunted cleveland tours which had included a mayhem and murder bus tour but that's if that's what you're looking for you'll have to look it up and see if he would be starting it back up and as for the murder swamp that property was purchased by a power company and has been roped off and dirt has filled in has been filled in in what used to be the swampland but it makes you wonder if all the bodies in that area have been found or if there are more that are still buried there these particular murders are in some way connected somehow it makes you wonder in cleveland who can wander a city and not be seen why would this man sweeney start to murder people what would what would trigger him what was his bigger biggest trigger was it his wife going to court and having him picked up was that his biggest trigger or was there something prior to that him himself there had to be someone helping him he would not have been able to get around that city without being noticed he was clean cut he was not he would have been noticed so who was going around that tent city you have to ask yourself who would not be noticed i'm thinking kids because who would who notices kids if you wrap them up if you're wrapping up the body pieces and he's telling them i'll pay you to dump, to go dump this somewhere they're not going to look if they want that money because where else are they going to get money and no one pays attention to kids they didn't back then that's just the theory that's my case for this week i hope that you enjoyed it i certainly have i want to let everyone know that i'm going to be changing the episode drop dates to thursday and this seems to work better with my schedule once things get back to whatever normal is going to be it'll get back to wednesdays just remember that my sources will be listed on my Facebook page at All Things Erie from Erie PA. If you have any questions or would like to leave a comment, please feel to do feel free to do so on on these platforms: Facebook, Spotify, and Podbean.com at All Things Erie from Erie PA. That is Mama Kitty. That's Erie with three E's and. These are also the platforms you can download the episodes from, and I'm also on Instagram and Twitter at K-A-T-H-Y-B-R-D-L-Y. I hope everyone is doing well, and remember this is Mental Health, Mental Health Awareness Month, and with everything going on, it's even harder to keep things straight. It's okay to not be okay. If you feel like something's just not right or you're feeling off, talk to your doctor or call NAMI. Healthline at 800-950-NAMI. That's 800-950-6264. Or if you're in a crisis, text NAMI to 741-741. Don't let anyone tell you that it's just in your head or to just suck it up. It's important to keep not just your body healthy, but your mind so stay safe, stay healthy, and this is Kathy signing off.